Hey there, and welcome to another edition of Inside Intercom. This week, instead of looking at the aspects of business that are concentrated on solving customer problems like your product design or support teams, we're going to take a closer look at the software team that's solving your startup's most fundamental business problems, your growth team. Joining me in the studio to give us some insight into how they can do their most impactful work is Casey Winters. Casey is currently the growth advisor in residence at Greylock Partners, where he parachutes into portfolio companies to help them with their growth strategies. But prior to linking up with Greylock, he was actually the product lead for the growth team at Pinterest, where, to put it simply, he helped the company reach over 150 million active users. And going back a bit, Casey was the first marketing hire at Grubhub, where, and you may be noticing a pattern, he played an integral role in growing the customer base from 30K to 3 million. In our conversation, Casey and I cover when your startup is ready for a dedicated growth team and the problems they should tackle first. You want to find usually a easy problem to solve that has high impact for the business, hopefully with a very high iteration cycle as well, because growth needs to run a lot of experiments to learn. The tools they can use to most effectively show users the value that your product can provide. Get the person to product value as fast as possible, but not faster. And what I mean by that is if you need to understand something about the person to be able to show them value, ask for that, but don't ask for a ton of things that you may not use before you show them the product. Why are user onboarding simply can't stay static? Despite that you might not be working on the thing right now, you do want to be signing up for your product all the time. You learn a lot of things by signing up in different use cases, in different formats, on different devices. If you like what you hear want to check out more Inside Intercom interviews, you can subscribe to our show over at iTunes or your favorite podcast app. But now, let's hop in the studio with Casey Winters. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Casey, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So just to get us started, you've got experience in a whole slew of domains over the years while you've been at places like Pinterest and Grubhub and today at Greylock, including product, marketing, business strategy. Can you just quickly give us the cliff notes of your career today? I mean, how'd you get to where you are today? Sure. I actually started my career as a marketing analyst at Apartments.com in Chicago, and that was a great way to learn how tech companies actually grow, which is very different from what I learned about in school. And I went from there being an analyst to actually working on some of these online marketing and growth techniques and went to a sister company of Apartments.com called HomeFinder, which is the real estate version, and basically set up all the online marketing and analytics pre-launch. And then from there, I went and joined Grubhub. Uh, after their Series A as the first marketing person. And I built out all the acquisition, retention marketing, and a lot of what we call growth now. We didn't know that was what to call it. Went there when we were around 30,000 users, left at about 3 million users, and left like six months before IPO. And then I joined Pinterest. And I started on the marketing team there, quickly moved to the product team, and eventually took over most of the product function of growth. So became like a product lead for the growth team and stayed there for three years, was there from 40 million actives to 150 million actives and recently joined Greylock Partners. Uh, so my role is a growth advisor in residence, which they've- Yeah, what does that never, mean exactly? Yeah, <laughs> never really done that before. Essentially what it means is that I help the portfolio companies with their growth strategies. Every company has growth challenges. So I get in there and try and figure out what, what's happening and, and how I can add value so that they can grow more sustainably. So what was it about that challenge that made you want to sort of leave being in the weeds at these high growth companies and go and work more with earlier stage startups? Yeah. So Pinterest was the largest company I'd ever been with when it, when it left. So I, I joined around 200 people and it was over a thousand when I left. So that was like one component is that I've always, you know, 
been in these earlier mid-stage companies and it was feeling more like a really large company. The other thing is, you know, I was there for a tour of duty, which was essentially to help make international growth happen for Pinterest. And we had largely accomplished that. And I didn't really have a next big challenge to go accomplish at Pinterest. So it felt like a, a good time to think about going back to earlier stage things, which is kind of where my sweet spot is anyway. So you mentioned earlier that you were doing this work and they didn't really know what to call it and sort of what we call growth today. And one thing I wanted to ask you is when you know, everyone's job at a company is to grow the company, mm-hmm. you know, engineers are creating solutions that inevitably help grow the company, same with marketers. How exactly do we define what the mission of a growth team should be? Yeah, uh, good question. So I think fundamentally at a tech company, there are three things you can work on. You can work on creating new value. You can work on improving on the value you've already created, or you can work on connecting more people to the existing value that's already been created. And I think growth does the third. And that can be acquiring more users into the product. But a lot of times, I'd say most of the time, it's actually reducing friction that prevents people from experiencing the value that's already been created. So that's what I think growth teams really do today. Cool. And when you're going to these companies, these portfolio companies at Greylock, do they have growth teams in place or are you helping them build out those teams? It's a mix depending on the stage. So the seed companies, usually not. You know, the ones that are much further along, like 100 employees, usually they have something or they are starting it for the first time. Uh, So it really depends on the stage. You know, you don't really want to be working on growth if you're trying to figure out what the product is. So if they do have a growth team and they're like 10 people, I'm like, wait a minute. uh, Do you have a product that works yet? Let's let's talk about this. But no, most of the time uh, it's people with a small growth team and they're trying to figure out how to make sure it actually works, how how to make sure it actually adds value or they're they're thinking about creating it for the first time. So somewhere in the middle there between the seed stage and this early growth team, they've got to make the decision to actually invest in this space and build out a team. What are the signs that they're looking for? When are they ready? Yeah. So I'd say roughly if you're a founder and what keeps you up at night has shifted from how do I create something that's valuable to how do I find more customers for this thing that I've already found out is valuable to another set of customers? That's the shift from, you know, I need to be working entirely on creating value to I need to be working on connecting more people to this value I've created. And that's really when you want to create a growth team. So basically, another way of saying that is once you have product market fit, start thinking about growth team. So product market fit is interesting and in that you're sort of, you'll hear sometimes, well, you have it when you have it. To you, what does product market fit mean? I know that you're a fan of Brian Balfour's model yeah. with the cohort, but to you, what, what exactly defines product market fit? So I think there's a couple things that I think about. So one is exactly what Brian has illustrated in, in some of his posts, which is you have a group of users that have come in. You watch how they use the product over time. And if over a long period of time, some of them have stuck with the product and continue to use it regularly, that's an indication of product market fit. The addition I would make to that as the sole criterion is that let's say that cohort, it doesn't just represent usage. It actually represents value created to the company, right? So uh, if you're charging that product, it you know shows a, a monthly subscription fee or a transaction fee or whatever. So that graph represents a lifetime value of a customer. And in order to truly have product market fit, you need to be able to grow the size of your user base with that lifetime value. So let's say your cohort flattens out and it creates a lifetime value of $50 on average, but your paid acquisition cost is $100 per user. And paid acquisition is the primary channel you're going to use to grow. That indicates you do not have product market fit until you either drop the CPA to $50 or you raise the lifetime value to $100. So you've gotten that and you're looking to build out a growth team for the first time. 
do you need all the pieces in place right away? Do you need a dedicated product manager, dedicated design resources, dedicated engineering resources, or can you borrow from other places in the company? Does that present issues? How do you feel about that? Yeah, so I am a big fan of a cross-functional team for growth and people that are dedicated to the growth problem. I think when people come from different backgrounds to focus on the same problem set, they create solutions that are greater than the sum of their parts. So if you're borrowing someone from another team and growth is not their focus, they just become an execution layer or a service layer, which means they're not contributing their brain to the problem, which means you generally come up with uh, less optimal solutions. But I don't think if you're an early stage company you need to think about like, oh, there's so many t- pieces I need to pull in place to get a growth team. Functionally, all you really need is a designer and an engineer to go sit together away from everyone else and pick a key problem that's preventing you from growing faster. A PM or an analyst is a nice to have, but and I've done both of those jobs, so I'm basically saying you don't need me. <laughs> but essentially all you need is you know, like an engineer and a designer to go figure some things out. And you know the, the designer might be able to play PM for a while. The engineer might be able to play analyst. And eventually, yeah, they're going to get busy and you're going to want to need to add those roles. But I think like a growth team that starts with two people can work. So I think a lot of times you'll see an early growth team, maybe they are borrowing resources and this is part of the issue, but they're tackling a lot of like very small pieces of the funnel, sort of these like low effort but low impact projects, Mm. almost sort of snacking and chipping away. What problems do you think a growth team should prioritize first? Is it smarter to start with big problems or do you need the momentum of these smaller changes? So I I think you need to go after big problems, essentially, right? Growth teams are treated with a healthy dose of skepticism by the rest of the company, usually. So you need to show that you're adding value to the actual company, and you need to put points on the board that the entire company can see. But that doesn't necessarily mean you start on the hardest problems. So I think you want to find, usually, a easy problem to solve that has high impact for the business, hopefully with a very high iteration cycle as well, because growth needs to run a lot of experiments to learn. So usually what I point people to when they're starting a growth team is one of three areas that usually will add a lot of impact. Conversion is a big area. It's got a high iteration cycle. You're usually iterating on a large volume of users because it's like every person that comes to the website. Onboarding. So onboarding has probably the highest impact long-term to growth in terms of you know activation rate leading to higher higher retention rate, but it has a low iteration cycle because you have to track these users over a long mm-hmm. period of time to see if they're actually adding value to the business. The other one is increasing your K factor. So if you're making the product more viral, you're getting more users for free, then that's another area where you have a pretty high iteration cycle. Usually those experiments don't take a long time to do, but they can have a pretty big impact. There are other areas of growth you will eventually work on, but those are the three that definitely have high impact. And then two of the three are actually low iteration cycles and not as complicated. To and the on. things that you got to do to sort of prove your value out before you can actually get closer to the product in a lot of ways. Exactly. So what are some examples, whether it be at Grubhub or Pinterest or even other things you've seen through your time through Greylock um, of early challenges that growth teams have tackled that you found to be particularly effective? Yeah. So I, I can talk about my experience at Pinterest there. So when I switched over from marketing to product at Pinterest, they actually made me the SEO PM. But when we started looking at the data as a team, we saw we're actually getting quite a few visits from SEO. It's just that the conversion rate was really bad. So we said, screw SEO. Let's actually work on the conversion rate for SEO traffic. And we, the first thing we did is we did a two-day project where as people came from Google, they would scroll down. And instead of letting them just see all the images forever and not asking them to sign up, 
we stopped them after a while and said, sign up. And if they clicked on a pin, we also stopped them and, and asked them to sign up. Took two days to implement, 50% improvement in conversion rate. Wow, just through gating that? Just through gating that. Uh, so just telling people there's a product to sign up for, it turns out some people will sign up. And no decrease in activation rate. So all of a sudden we were getting a lot more users. They were retaining because the product was good. And, you know, every graph kinks in the company from that work. And that kicked off a whole stream of optimization work after that to continue to grow the conversion rate, which we did. But it was a very simple project, just looking at the metrics and saying like, okay, here's clearly an opportunity. Let's look at some past experiments to f- figure out what might help us. And let's, let's try something out. And how many stakeholders did you have in that project? So it's basically me, an engineering manager, and one other engineer that worked on that. We did actually borrow a design resource, which I don't recommend, but we uh, we were made able it work. To, we made it work. You know, you do what you can, and we were able to just launch the experiment to see what happened. Now, once we got the data back, we did have a much bigger conversation, you know, with our head of product, CEO, etc., about what we saw, why we saw it, and what it means for the business, but. You want to have as low friction to just getting experiments out there to validate assumptions. And we were able to do that really well at Pinterest overall as a growth team. I think most any software company sort of low-hanging fruit for a lot of their blog posts is little optimizations they've made in the growth funnel. But One looking, simple trick. One simple trick, exactly. <laughs> but looking more like the, the natural world outside of software, is there anything that you think we can draw inspiration from as software product builders? Uh, Absolutely. So, you know, what we did at Grubhub, for example, is we looked at how other companies grew online or offline. And we saw like in our space that, you know, we have a bunch of people that go to restaurants that are going to be on Grubhub. And this is a, a large amount of real estate that we could use to promote Grubhub. So we basically figured out what's a value exchange with the restaurant where they could actually use some of their real estate to tell people to go to Grubhub to order food. And that ended up being a very large channel for us. So like just offline signs or offline, you know, promotions worked really well in in growing the business. And another example that I, that I remember, like first time I came out here, I saw the lift mustaches. You know, it's like, Hey, the product is the car. Make people say like, why is that car special? And then they learn about Lyft. And that was a really helpful uh, element of physical evidence to grow the business. So uh, that's kind of one thing that we thought about. We were researching virality for Pinterest. We deliberately tried to say like, hey, what are the forms of virality that happened prior to the internet? And why did those businesses grow? Because you can get, you can get you know, sucked into like, oh, this company did this text message thing. But really what you want to understand is like, what is the heart of the product that makes it grow virally? So we talked about like Christianity. Why did Christianity spread so fast? And it's because, oh, because part of the value of being a Christian is that you have to share the experience with others, right? So things like that were research that we did that helped us understand where good ideas might come from. That's interesting. So what other, I mean, Christianity is a great example, but like what other types of things like that did you guys chase or research? Well, I think, you know, it wasn't something we looked at at the time, but like today, like let's talk about fidget spinners. Like that thing went from zero to everywhere in weeks. There was one across from me on the bus today. (laughs) Yeah, uh, they're everywhere, right? So we looked at kind of, you know, the historical viral toys, things like that. How did they get big so quickly? Things like that. Any sort of high growth offline companies, like how are they able to reach people and really tried to boil down, like, what are the core components that we could possibly leverage for our product? 
Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service, and it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. So jumping back a little bit, you talked about these three key areas to focus on early in a growth team's lifespan, and one of them being onboarding. Yeah. Uh, onboarding is something that we spend a lot of time focusing on here at Intercom. We, sure. Shameless plug, we wrote a book about it. <laughs> but um, I mean, in general, I think you have very similar views on it uh, as we do in that it's not just about signups or downloads or anything like that. It's about getting people to come back again and again because they've found value and they've reached that aha moment in your product. Right. You've got two metrics for sort of deciding how to focus on onboarding. One is a frequency target and the other one is the key action. Yeah. And I'm curious about both of those. Like how does a start startup go about pinpointing what those should be? I mean, particularly when you have users who derive value in different ways from a product. Right. So for frequency... What I always tried to figure out is what is the offline analog to this product? So for Grubhub, it was you know calling a restaurant on the phone and ordering food. Mm-hmm. So we researched how often people did that. And people were doing it once or twice a month on average. So we said, okay, our frequency target at first should be monthly. For Pinterest, it was very similar. It's like, what is the offline action that Pinterest replacing? The most close thing is browsing a magazine, which are monthly subscriptions. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, it's probably a monthly thing here. Right. So it's that idea of no new consumption, basically. Right. Long term, you want to increase the consumption from whatever the offline analog is. But to start, you just want to understand what the baseline is that you're trying to replace. So that's usually my and look, that can be an online product as well if you're trying to replace uh, an online product. But in those two cases, we were really trying to replace what people were doing offline in terms of the key action. That's a little harder. So what I like to think about is what is something someone does on your product that indicates they received value? For Grubhub, that's pretty easy. They order food, so they have to transact Mm -hmm. to get value. So that's the key metric. For Pinterest, it was a little bit harder. So there are multiple ways that people can get value. They can just browse a bunch of images and think that's valuable. They can save things and and find clearly if they save something, something we showed them was valuable to them. Or they can click to the source of the content. And as we looked at those three things, oh, clicks can be gamed by clickbait. 
it's hard to understand if when people are scrolling through a lot of images, is that's because they like seeing them all or if it's because they can't find what they want, so they continue going. So repin actually, the save functionality, most correlated. It was the easiest to understand that, yeah, the person definitely is receiving value if they do this. And it correlated the best with long-term retention when we did our correlations. So then what you have to do is test that hypothesis to see if you try and push people toward saving things, do they actually retain better? So our first experiment was basically forcing everyone to repin. Mm -hmm. That did not work. (laughs) And then the second set of experiments was around educating people on how to repin and the value of a repin. And that did actually increase the activation and retention for the business. One problem I know that you faced with Pinterest, as all discovery tools face, and maybe not so much with Grubhub where someone's like, I'm just trying to figure out how to get pizza to my house as quickly as possible. But with something like Pinterest or productivity tools like a Trello or an Airtable, you got to be able to paint a picture for people so they're not just sitting there staring at a blank page wondering what to do next and then leave and never come back. So I know you guys toyed with all sorts of things there at Pinterest, but how do you strike a balance between showing people value as quickly as possible, but then also not creating so many steps that it weighs the user down and you lose them along the way? Right. My basic philosophy here is you want to get the person to product value as fast as possible, but not faster. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is if you need to understand something about the person to be able to show them value, ask for that, but don't ask for a ton of things that you may not use before you show them the product, because then they might drop off the product before they even see what the real product Mm -hmm. is. So for Pinterest, we need to know what you're interested in to be able to show you value. Because the the goal of the product is to show you things that you're interested in and get you to do those things in real life. So at first, we asked you to follow people that shared your interest. And then you would see what things they're pinning. And eventually we switched to, okay, just what topics do you care about? And we'll show you the best content in those topics. And that worked pretty well. Pinterest is always seeing if there's a better way to do that. To get stickier. To, yeah, to get stickier, just to connect people to the value even faster. And we tried things where it's like, oh, you pick that topic, here are a bunch of subtopics. Pick from those. And then that added too much friction to getting to the value, which is why there's only pick a topic, you're in the product, here's a bunch of cool stuff. Uh, we tried going deeper, but it was too much friction and it didn't work. But yeah, for Grubhub, didn't need onboarding at all, right? It's like you search... You see a bunch of menus, it's pretty clear, you can order the food online, there's basically no education at all, and you just go. And hey, if you got a product like that, it's great, you can skip this entire part of the funnel. But for Pinterest, it was the most important part of growing the business. Of course, in that Grubhub model, you then have a whole middle variable controlling whether or not the user is satisfied by using the product. Right. Is the food good? Did it come on time? All of those things play a big role. Right. So I imagine as you're signing up for products yourself, whether you mean to or not, you're probably evaluating these experiences. Is there anything, like do you have pet peeves as you're signing up for a product yourself that you just see over and over and you're like, why do product companies keep doing this or anything you've run into lately that excites you? Yeah, so the the most common problem I see is that I sign up for a product and it just dumps me into something that's like empty and I have no idea what to do that or what the product state. is for. Yeah, so the empty state is a huge problem yeah, or the cold start mm-hmm. and I just don't know what to do. And it's like, I feel like I'm an expert in this and I don't know what to do. How is the average user going to know what to do here? So that's generally the most common problem I see. The other thing that unnerves me is when I get like a book to read in front of the product. I just want to get into the product and have you contextually educate me on what I need to care about at this particular moment. Not tell me like 10 screens, which probably, by the way, most people are just like skipping through as fast as possible and then expect me to get everything. So I prefer more of the 
in product contextual context, education yep. than kind of a, a user manual before I even see the product. So a lot of our listeners are very early stage companies. We talked about obviously starting a growth team and getting your onboarding right, but how often should they be revisiting their onboarding? I mean, it, it can't be static. Context changes. Your user base is right. going to change. Are you Should you just constantly be re-signing up for your own product? How do you advise companies on that? Yeah. So, so there's a couple things there. I think in an early stage, if you've gotten to the point where you've built an early growth team, that growth team should be focusing on one thing at a time. And for certain times, it's going to be onboarding. For certain times, it's not. So usually those are three to six month periods where you're like, we're focused on onboarding or we're focused on conversion. What you don't want to do is like, hey, we have, we have five engineers on growth and they're working on five separate areas of the funnel. That usually does not have the type of impact. Those experiments also end up interrupting each other too. Yes, they, they do. So you want to take a look at your funnel, realize where the biggest opportunities are and say, hey, we're going to focus on just the biggest one. Everything else we'll revisit in three to six months, mm-hmm. but we're just going to focus entirely on that. And you kind of have, you know, in some cases, a very long onboarding sprint. Some cases might be a very long conversion sprint, re- referral sprint, whatever the case may be. And other than that, what you brought up, which I really like, is despite that you might not be working on the thing right now, you do want to be signing up for your product all the time. You learn a lot of things by signing up in different use cases, in different formats, on different devices. And you see a lot of bugs usually, see a lot of things that don't make sense. And even if you're not going to work on them immediately, you can kind of write them down and kind of log them for later. Now, that's that's different, though, than assuming that you are your own product's customer, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I have a blog post on this. It's a common product I see. It's like, you know, you talk to a person at a startup and they're like, well, when I do this, is this the way I do it? And it's like, yeah, but you're not the customer. I don't care how much you look like the customer, you have way too much knowledge about this problem to assume that the way you do it is the way other people will do it. So, you know, doing a lot of qualitative research, just getting something in front of potential customers, you know, put a phone in front of them and then say, hey, sign up for this thing and watch what they do. Ask them questions. I spent most of 2015 traveling to different countries, watching people sign up for Pinterest. It was horrifying. Everyone was confused. No one understood what the product was for. It was bad, but that time led to a bunch of insights that created a bunch of successful experiments that grew the activation rates of our products and the retention rates. You just can't learn if you're not like putting product in front of users and watching how they do it. And sure, an experiment can tell you what's going on, but it's not going to tell you why. You really need to get in front of your user base to understand that. So much of what we read about onboarding focuses on like the first few minutes of usage. Scott Belsky's got the first mile of the product, which yeah. is a great way of branding it. But as we mentioned, we've got to keep these people coming back again and again. So whether it be at Pinterest or Grubhub or Greylock, I mean, what retention tactics have you found to just be very successful? That's kind of low-hanging fruit that everyone should get a handle on. So most of these that I found are very company-specific, unfortunately. So sure, you can send emails and notifications, and that will be a layer of additional retention on top of your product, but it won't fix broken retention. It will, it's an optimization play. So what I can give a few examples of what we found at, at Grubhub and Pinterest. So at Grubhub, we talked to users and we said, okay, why don't you use Grubhub more often? And they would say, it's expensive. I was like, well, that's weird. Grubhub actually doesn't charge you at all. But what they meant is that minimums were high, delivery fees were high, and it felt like they were spending a lot to get dinner. So what we did is we went back to our restaurants and we said, hey, people aren't ordering as much as they would because your minimum's too high or your delivery fee is too high. 
why don't you try a test where you drop those and we can see if the increased volume you'll receive will make up for the lower margins on those orders. We got a few restaurants to try that and they saw a dramatic increase in volume that way more than made up for the loss in margin per order. And then we were able to use those testimonials to help other restaurants lower their minimums and fees. And that increased both the retention rate, so how many people would continue to use Grubhub, how often they would use it, and how many people would order the first time because they were able to find something that was affordable for them that they liked. So it was a really big effort and win for the company. The other thing with related to increasing retention is just getting more variety overall. We basically saw at Grubhub, the more restaurants you add, the higher the conversion rate is and the more often people order. So, you know, if you only have pizza and Chinese restaurants, you get a certain level of retention. But if you expand to sushi and Indian and all of these other things, then people can use it for a lot more occasions. So that was a big effort that also worked out really well. For Pinterest, basically the problem was that the product had gotten too complicated. So as we did this research internationally, we saw that we were just throwing too many concepts at people and people were just not seeing content that they liked and understanding the value. So what we basically did is we went back to the product and we stripped it down. We basically removed all the advanced features for new users and said, hey, the only thing that they're gonna do is connect to cool content And then if we understand that they get that, they like the content and they start saving it, then we can start to reintroduce some of these other things. But it's silly to try to tell a person about a group board if they don't know what a board is yet, right? We did that for basically the first 30 days of the product. So not the first few minutes, like the first 30 days, like all this stuff is gone. We're going to make sure you understand that you can save things. We're going to make sure you can understand that this pin came from another website and you can go click on it to get there. And everything else is gone until we make sure you understand that. And we can start to slowly reintroduce other things. And that really helped out uh, activation rate and long-term retention for the business. So that sort of slow roll of contextually educating people on what they need next. Yes. And not being too cute about it. So, for example, at, at Pinterest, like the save button said, pin it. And people internationally were like, we'd ask them, okay, what do you think that button does? And they're like, oh, I didn't know it was a button. It looked like the logo. So they wouldn't click on it. They would never find out what it was. So then we finally just said, why don't we just make it the local word for save? And then people started clicking on it more and people started connecting to the value more. So you know, we're trying to get a little bit too cute, a little bit too brand focused on some of these things where the most important thing a brand should do is help people understand what the value of this thing, what is the brand promise, right? And we were obscuring that uh, with our branding work. So that was another optimization we made that really helped out. That's kind of funny when you think about People invest all this time into making their copy stand out, but without focusing on the clarity of it. I mean, being simple and straight to the point is going to get the user into the product and straight to the value. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm a marketing undergrad and a marketing MBA. I love marketing, but at some point, uh, the way a marketer got valued based on was how clever they were instead of how clear a communicator they were. And I think that's a very bad direction to go down. See, as you said, you've you've been a marketer. uh, You're advising companies on growth, you've built growth teams, you've been on the product side, and all these people touch different aspects of the funnel. No one team is ever going to own it all. So how do you advise companies to make sure that as a user is going through this, they don't feel your org chart as they go from the marketing site that the marketing team owns, the onboarding experience that the growth team owns, to then being re-engaged by the product team when new features come out, things like that. Right. So as I said before, cross-functional teams can solve a part of this, right? Where it's not marketing team owns one thing. It's the uh, you know unauth product experience team that includes marketers, includes product managers, includes designers, engineers, analytics. But that only solves part of the problem because even if you have cross-functional teams, 
the user is going to eventually move from one cross-functional teams area to another cross-functional teams area. And what I think really needs to happen is the manager of the people on multiple cross-functional teams needs to be the glue between those experiences. So if you're a design manager and you're managing designers that are on the website team and the onboarding team, you need to be evaluating what's going on in both of those teams and make sure it creates a holistic experience. And I think that's the primary role of managers in a cross-functional implementation. And that totally can work, but everyone needs to understand that that's what the role is. And that's something that as these teams scale is frequently a problem. Like I, I go through LinkedIn and like you switch to one other part of the product and it just feels like a totally different design totally different goals. Like It feels like two totally different companies. Right. And it's like, yeah, they probably have some gap in their org structure that's creating this. And I think as you grow companies, you need to constantly be mindful of that. I think our design team was pretty good at that at Pinterest. And I think they were more the clear owners of that you know, kind of consistency across the product. But it doesn't necessarily need to be designed. I think every manager should make that their role. No, I think we totally agree on that. So before we go, Casey, where can our listeners go to read more of what you're writing? I know you put together some podcasts yourself from time to time. Where can we find out more about what you're doing? Yeah, so I blog at caseyaccidental.com or at graylock.com. So you can read more things there. And I'm on Twitter at one case man. So feel free to reach out. Yeah, I'm always trying to Make sure companies get the best practices from all these different companies distributed everywhere, right? I feel the more that we can work on growing products the most efficient way, the better everyone is and we the best all products from will it. win. Yeah, so I'm always trying to get more of this content out there. I'm not trying to, to hoard it. So if there's any questions you have, feel free to reach out. Awesome. Well, thanks again for popping through the studio and sharing some of it with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.